the biggest misguided notion about social work is probably the fact that it's not worthwhile. Mm. Like, I want new kids to say, I want to be a social worker. I want a career day to be like, you know, for someone to invite a social worker and kids go, ooh, I want to do that. Whether it's middle school or elementary or high school, college. I want to hear that. I want the social work um, chapters of each college not to be the smallest school or something, but the smallest group. Um, I want people to feel that it is worthwhile. Thank you for listening to the Misguided Notions podcast. So as we go ahead with the social work highlight series for the month of March because it is social work month. Yay. Happy social work month to all the amazing social workers out there. We do such great work in our communities and unfortunately we don't get recognized a lot for it. So I'm doing this as a way for you to see all of the hard work that you do does not go unnoticed. And this week, I got to sit down with Shamika Vargas, who was absolutely incredible. I'm still on a high from our conversation that I had, well, that we had. And she was just such a joy and such a great spirit to be around. And when I tell you the things that this woman does, like, I want to be like her when I grow up. Like, honestly, if there's any one person that I could choose as far as someone to really look up to as far as what they're doing in their career she is that person and I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to meet with her and we really get into the idea of what social work is in the sense that it's not just one career path that a lot of people seem to think I mean Media always portrays us as these people that go in and break up families and take children away, but it's not that. And, you know, she really discusses all the different highlights of her career. I'm excited to see where she's going to go next. I mean, there was so much that we discovered as far as where she started, which was as a young, younger person, um, in high school, ninth grade. Uh, I don't want to give away too much, but we had the discussion as far as how she had a role model that she could look up to who basically she wanted to, ah, okay. Thought, well, oh, okay. Social work, not, not bad. And, you know, she really, goes into great discussion about how she started out in foster care. Then she ended up working with people who were incarcerated and their families and the importance of how social workers, we all have our side hustles. She also gets into the work that she currently does now and how she ended up working at her current organization, Our Children. And also just to note, she even was featured on New York One. I will definitely link that video with Shamika in the show notes, so be sure to check that out. We also get into the aspect of being intentional with our work and how to surround ourselves with supportive people, not just your family and friends, but even your coworkers, just being around supportive coworkers and effective ways to deal with burnout. 
we get into that and so much more. And I'm so excited for you to listen to this episode. And stay tuned for next week when we highlight another social worker who is doing great things in our community. Tell our listeners about you, Shanika. Sure. Uh, that's always a hard question, actually. <laughs> I'm not sure, but I am a licensed clinical social worker, as you said. I'm a whopping 34 years old, mother of an 11 year old middle schooler. So, really, really going through it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So I'm Puerto Rican, born in Brooklyn. So, officially, New Yorkian is what they call me. And I'm um, lover of life in general, I guess, getting through day to day, trying out new things. And how long have you been in practice as a social worker? Um, I have probably been doing this officially about 12 years. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what inspired you to become a social worker? Of all the things. Of all the things. (laughs) I know. We were talking a little bit before mentioning how, you know, you never hear kids say, when I grow up, I want to be a social worker. Um, And I'm not going to say that I was different and that I did say that. I did not say that. (laughs) But uh, when I was younger, I actually wanted to be a like a wrestling manager, so I was a huge fan of WWF, <laughs> and I don't know if you remember like Sensational Sherry and all those characters, but that's who I wanted to be when I grew oh up. My that goodness. obviously did not happen. Uh-huh. Um, I think I became a social worker just actually starting from the premise that I wanted to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, my family, no one in my family had graduated from high school as far as I was concerned, and they certainly had not gone to college, but everything that I watched on television that remotely had families that looked happy or kids that looked happy were all talking about that they were going to college. Mm. So that's how it started. Um, I probably started to connect with social work, though, as an idea when I was in high school, about ninth grade. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. And so what happened was that I actually started doing, I moved to Connecticut. Mm -hmm. So I'm from Brooklyn, but I moved to Connecticut when I was about almost 12. And when I was about 14, I enrolled in, like, the summer youth employment. So they still have those programs where they kind of help low-income teenagers work a little bit in the summertime. Yeah. And so I got a position probably doing – I think the first job was at a daycare. But part of the way they structured the program in Connecticut was that you also had to go to, like, a peer advocacy group or something, like, on Fridays, like, once a week, I remember. The funny part is the person who facilitated summer youth in the town I grew up in or I was living in uh, was a social worker. So that was the first time I learned, without even realizing it, that social workers are forced to do a bunch of stuff that I'm sure wasn't part of her work responsibilities. <laughs> she was facilitating summer youth. Right. And so what happened was that she introduced herself and she facilitated this group of peers, really just a bunch of teenagers talking to each other about you know things going on in their world and eating pizza. She also told us that she was a social worker in juvenile justice. So I had no idea what that meant, and she told us a little bit about it and how some teenagers, you know, make mistakes and they get in trouble, and, you know, they might have to do things like community service and probation, all this different stuff I just didn't understand. Um, But the more she told me about it, the more interested I became. Mm-hmm. And then she, I met a teen who was, like, on probation mm-hmm. um, one time that summer. I was doing it for a couple of years, so it may have been the second summer. Mm-hmm. And I remember just talking with her and the social worker and just kind of enjoying mm. talking to people about mm. things in their lives yeah. that they weren't necessarily proud of or they were still mm-hmm. trying to navigate. Mm-hmm. And even though I hadn't been in trouble, I felt like I understood, like, not knowing how to navigate life and mm-hmm. <laughs> needing, like, some kind of support. <laughs> And in some ways, I guess the rest is history. Like, I just knew I wanted to go to college, and I was like, I think I like to help people, 
and this is, you know, I'm seeing a social worker in action, and she's, the woman said to me, you know, if you like helping people, you might want to be a social worker, and if you become a social worker, you come back here to work. That never happened. <laughs> okay. I was like, oh, you got a guaranteed job. No, okay. That never happened. That never came back to Connecticut. So. Okay. But um, that was the beginning of my path toward a social work, at least. It sounds like you had a great role model. Yeah. Role model. Role model. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Okay. That too. Good. She was very cool. Yeah. Okay. I remember that was the first time I saw that. Besides, you know, we think of social workers, or I would say, when I was growing up, social workers were only like CPS workers, child protection right. workers, ACS, DCW back in the day. Right. Um, and so that was that was not nothing of what we would have said we wanted to be when we were growing up necessarily. Right. right. Um, right. but it was nice to see somebody in a totally different capacity mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. being, you know, someone who seems to enjoy what they were doing. And it exposed you to a lot more than what the general consensus was. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, social workers do more than just take kids out of their homes. Exactly. So to speak. exactly. <laughs> and it's, yeah, and even that idea of a different Mm-hmm. Right? Because then Absolutely. you still think like everything about social work is related to like foster care and child welfare. And it's That's not. true. It's not. Mm-hmm. So, can you tell us a bit about where you initially started as far as your career mm-hmm. to where you are now? Sure. Yeah. I would say I really believe my career started with my internship in grad mm-hmm. school because mm-hmm. um, my last internship was at the Bronx Defenders, okay. which now is a very recognized defense agency organization in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, I was placed there in criminal defense, and at that time, they actually were only doing criminal defense because the year that I was there, not to date myself, but to date myself, <laughs> but the year that I was there was the was the year that they were actually going to be launching family defense for the first time. Oh, what's that? So family defense was the practice of having social workers assigned to parents when they were being accused of abuse or neglect in, in child welfare. So, you know, so prior to that, uh, Bronx Defenders was really focusing on criminal defense and aligning social workers with attorneys to really understand, like, what were the things that were getting people caught up in the criminal justice system. So my whole year um, when I was in grad school was dedicated to working on, you know, those types of cases. And I really did enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they were, again, going to expand that at the end of that year Mm -hmm. into family defense. And now, if you actually look into the Bronx Defenders, they expanded way more than even that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think they do. Criminal defense, family defense, immigration stuff, um, I know, like, know your rights and things. I don't want to okay. misspeak of that. Right. <laughs> yeah, sure. But they do a lot. So okay. I would say that that's where I started. The interesting thing is, though, that year when I was finishing up school, I also got pregnant. Oh, wow. And although not necessarily by mistake, because that's not usually how pregnancies work, but right. also not <laughs> 100% planned time-wise. Right. And so I felt like I needed to take a little bit of time, even if it was just, you know, traditional, like, three months, Mm -hmm. to really think about what I wanted to do in foster Mm -hmm. care. Or or in social work, I should say. But that's what happened in foster care. So I took a few months off. I was just looking to work with teenagers. That's really where my brain was going. Mm -hmm. And I saw this posting um, with... A JCCA, Jewish Child Care Association. Oh, yeah. And I saw that they had a position to work with teens who were coming out of um, foster care and returning home. And I thought that that was really mm-hmm. interesting. And I didn't necessarily understand all the dynamics that would go into why kids and teens weren't home in the first place and then why they were coming home now and what it takes to necessarily keep the families um, reunited and together at that mm-hmm. point. But I said, let's try. So um, I went into that world and they call that aftercare work. And I'm, I will always say I'm so glad that that's what I decided to do first officially um, because a few years after that, 
I wound up being asked if I wanted to be a supervisor in what they consider to be more like the front end of foster care, mm-hmm. which is reunification. Mm-hmm. And that's when cases are first coming in. And I didn't last there. I, really? I took the job. I enjoyed being a supervisor. I was scared and all that good stuff and nervous, but I, I was like, okay, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but the front end of, of foster care was not for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just, I found it to be incredibly hard work. So, you know, shouts to everybody who still does that work because it's tremendously important work, but it's very taxing. It's very difficult. It's brutal mm-hmm. um, because you really start to get a sense of the fact that, you know, people are caught up in systems for reasons that ne- aren't necessarily fair in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it is really trying to kind of detangle people from the system can be so hard. Mm-hmm. And I found myself feeling like I needed it to be adversarial, not because that's how I felt, but because that's how the system was mm-hmm. set up. Like somebody has to win, somebody has to lose. Mm-hmm. And that just didn't align with who I wanted to be in this field. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I have got to go. Wow. So I was very grateful that I started at the at the end in aftercare instead mm-hmm. because I was really focusing on bringing kids home years later after they hadn't been in I hadn't been home at all right. um, and that was difficult work to see all the things that kids had been through just mm-hmm. by being separated from their families and it taught me a lot you know mm-hmm. um, so that was a good beginning mm-hmm. um, after that I went to go work at a place called Legal Information for Families Today mm-hmm. and that was specifically providing support to people involved in child support custody and visitation cases that was interesting, and family offense to a limited degree, mm-hmm. and that was really a, an interesting next step because number one, I got to do more like program management, not just direct practice work, which I really realized that I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other piece was that I had been working in family court, and it had really been mostly about foster parents and biological parents and agencies and ACS and all these different entities. And now I was working in family court, but it was a lot more intra-family issues, mm. right? So it was like, I'm fighting with you because we used to love each other and we don't love each other anymore. And now, for some reason, not only do we not love each other, but we don't know how to talk about what we're going to do with our children. Mm-hmm. Now, or like, or, you know, or I've been gone, I had been incarcerated, and you took care of my child, and now you won't give my kid back, and what's going on? How come I can't at least visit? Or someone passes away, and a grandparent wants to visit their grandchild, but the parent that, you know, has custody doesn't want to, doesn't feel comfortable with that grandparent. It was a lot of really interesting situations. Um, but it was the first time that I really started to work a lot more with people who had been incarcerated. Because they really had, um, they really did not have access to information in terms of what it meant to hold child support arrears or you know, how do I get custody back for my child? Or how come I can't even have visits even though they weren't involved in child welfare? Their rights weren't necessarily terminated or anything. So it was a different kind of world. Mm-hmm. Um, in that job, I started teaching parenting classes across like the five boroughs. Oh, so wow. I just met so many different kinds of people, mm-hmm. moms, dads, grandparents, mm-hmm. older siblings, aunts, uncles, anybody you could think of, just right. people really kind of taking up the helm of caregiving. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started just connecting with other agencies. Mm-hmm. I would take on little jobs here and there too. Like mm-hmm. I worked at an outpatient mental health clinic mm-hmm. part time because social workers always gotta have a second <laughs> right? muscle. Always, like, always. <laughs> <laughs> or try to connect. I did some advising of yeah. students and stuff. You know, just a little, like I said, you know, extra money here and there, and for experience's sake. Sure. Um, and then by doing the work um, at Lyft, it's actually how I connected with my current agency, mm-hmm. which is Our Children, H O U R, like the time. And we, we work with formerly incarcerated women and their families. And we actually work with incarcerated women and formerly incarcerated mm-hmm. women because we have people on staff that are only in correctional mm-hmm. facilities. Mm-hmm. 
um, facilitating parenting, facilitating visitation, mm -hmm. advocacy, pretty much any anything that a woman may need during the incarceration to stay connected to family. Mm -hmm. And mostly it winds up being their children, but it also expands to being, you know, family in general because right. people really need the more support you have while you're incarcerated, you have something to kind of look forward to mm -hmm. and be able to come out and stay connected with through support networks, healthy mm -hmm. support networks. It's really important to reducing recidivism. So I got on board with them back in 2016, okay. 2016 mm -hmm. as the director of mental health services. Mm -hmm. And I've been there ever since. And that's the world that I'm in is really back in some ways back where I started uh -huh. because although I'm in reentry, yeah. so I'm working with people when they're coming home from incarceration I see it as a form of defense work mm -hmm. because oftentimes people are coming home and they're still on parole. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and parole is an entity that can very easily swallow people back up. And so sometimes that's part of defense work is really how do we get you connected with what you need um, and then also be able to do the healing work of the trauma of the things that led you to incarceration, the trauma you experienced while you're incarcerated, mm -hmm. and the trauma people go through just by being a human in this world every day. So that's where, you know, that's where I landed. <laughs> and you see, so here you are saying all these things and, you know, as social workers, we deal with a lot of heavy, heavy stuff. Mm -hmm. How do you like, I don't know, I don't want to use the word de-stress, but like, mm -hmm. how do you like turn it off? Mm -hmm. Or how do you like deal with all these things that you have to like soak in on a right. day, day yeah. basis? Like, I think it is intentional work, mm -hmm. right? I think it is absolutely intentional mm -hmm. to try to take time to say, I need to do things to decompress. I need to do things to restore, rejuvenate my soul. I need to be in spaces that rejuvenate my soul. Um, and so I think the first piece is actively making that a goal. Like in the same way, you know, people kick off a new year and they say, oh, this year I'm going to lose weight and I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to do all that stuff. It's like every week, every day, every year, like you have to really be intentional about what are the ways in which I'm taking care of myself in order to take care of other people. People say that all the time. You can't take care of other people. You got to take care of yourself. Well, my second to that is also, or maybe even first to that is also the fact that I say to myself, I'm never going to take care of anybody else's family better than I take care of mine. Mm -hmm. So part of that is making sure that I have time with my family, mm -hmm. with my partner, with my son, making sure that I take time to um, be with myself, you know, even if it, and it can it shows itself in so many different mm -hmm. ways. I pick up little hobbies here and there. I just try new things. I'm like, oh, this year, 2019 is the year of crocheting. Okay. Um, any of my friends who know me, they say every year has a little something, something. Okay. I might pick up. I might pick up more than one thing. So right. last year, I really was into like doing 5Ks. I tend to like to oh, run no. in general. But last year, I picked up doing a couple, like about three or four or five Ks. Oh, K's. that's great. I started doing like spin class at Flywheel. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. This year, I think I'm going to do 5Ks again because I tend to enjoy running. Okay. But I did. I picked up some, I picked up crocheting. Yeah. In the past, I was like, oh, I'll do scrapbooking. I love to read. Okay. I love to journal. But I really will try so many different things. Mm -hmm. I really love to cook. Mm -hmm. So I think that the most consistent way I tend mm -hmm. to decompress is actually cooking. Because even whether it's just chopping vegetables and peeling and getting ready, like there's something very soothing about mm -hmm. that for me. Mm -hmm. So that's probably the most consistent thing I do. I sleep. Like, I value sleep like nobody's business. So, I thought that was just me. No, no, no. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I'm like a, I'm a dog person, but I'm like a cat. Okay. So, <laughs> I, I really make the effort to mm -hmm. sleep. And I think I, 
truly make an effort to surround myself, whether physically or even connected, whether by text or call, with people who are just rejuvenating people, who are just really good people. Because we give a lot of energy at work. Oh my gosh. And so you gotta have people that when you connect with them, you're not always giving. Because if you're always giving, you're gonna deplete yourself. And so I think that that's a big thing. So laughter, <laughs> whether it's watching a stand up on Netflix or when I'm making fun of myself. But <laughs> laughter is a crucial and I think also consistent way. Podcast. Yes, listening yes. to podcasts. Okay. <laughs> um, so I think all those different things. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. And so, do you feel like there was a point in your career where you, like, questioned, why did I do this? Girl. <laughs> Wednesday. No. Last <laughs> <laughs> week. Two months ago. No, I'm kidding. Um, like, that yes. one moment where it was like, oh, one oh my gosh. You what know, did I get myself into? I Honestly, mm -hmm. I would say when I became a supervisor in foster mm -hmm. care. I think I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think I took that position in September, I want to say. Mm -hmm. I might be off. doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. I probably had it for nine months. That's what okay. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's say I took it in the fall of whatever mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. Probably within three or four months, mm -hmm. I found myself having actual nightmares, like waking up very scared, like high anxiety. I just kept feeling like, oh, I forgot something. Oh crap! I didn't speak to this person. Did I sign that? Did we do that report? All this kind of stuff, and it made me physically ill. Mm -hmm. And I'm so not that person. Mm -hmm. Like it's interesting because you know, as we talk as social workers, mm -hmm. you say you know we deal with a lot of like really heavy stuff. Mm -hmm. And yet, I think people are in this world with their purpose, and I don't think I'm meant to be doing something else. Mm -hmm. So although the work that I've been doing over the years is heavy, it also is just soothing in some ways because it's what I, it, I'm enjoying it. It's it your hard, calling. but it's my calling, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. But when I found myself physically ill, when I found myself, it, again, interrupting my sleep, mm. how I, how much mm. I value my sleep, mm. when I had, when I was at that point, I said, oh my God, I can't do this. Mm. I don't know if I've ever questioned doing social work, mm -hmm. but it was very scary to not necessarily know what I wanted to do next. Mm. And I think that that's something I probably come to every three or four years, right. where it's not necessarily feeling like I don't want to do this work anymore, <sighs> but it's kind of feeling like I don't know in what space I want to do this mm. work next. And I do sometimes think maybe one day, there won't be more next for mm -hmm. me in this mm -hmm. realm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I don't know yeah. what happens then. Yeah, that's okay. Right. I, I feel like whatever, listen, whatever it is that you're doing now, I think is incredible work. And like you were saying earlier, it's intentional work. Mm -hmm. right. Right. And it's your calling. I think mm -hmm. that's wonderful. Um, so as we were talking about like the whole, like this work being so heavy and like all these things. So, how do you prevent burnout? Mm -hmm. um, talking is important, mm -hmm. right? And I would be remiss if I didn't say I think like therapists and social workers need therapists mm -hmm. <laughs> also, right? Um, but I'm not necessarily in therapy right now, but I have been in the past multiple times because one of the interesting things that has happened in my career is that I've wound up in a lot of places that actually don't provide clinical supervision. And I don't know if you've experienced mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. um, but working in what they call like host settings mm -hmm. where the social work 
paradigm or framework is not the lead of the agency, I then see. you could wind up in positions where your supervisor's an attorney, mm. which has happened to me. Or my supervisor right now is the executive director and she's a nun. Like, mm. like that happens to me, right? And so what I've been grateful for is that I've always worked for people who are very supportive. Mm. Or I've had coworkers who can lend some of that support to process cases, to process the emotional material of it, mm. but it, I haven't necessarily been able to have clinical supervision, mm. and I need that. Like I need sure. to, to do that. So at times, that's another reason. You know, the, that's another reason for the importance of like con- of connecting with a therapist right. is because you're trying to process for yourself your own things that might be triggered. Mm. But sometimes you also need to be able to talk about cases in a way that's sure. that's safe and and really kind of um, you know drawing material out. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I would say is that. I have a group with some of my girlfriends Mm -hmm. that, you know, we're all professional women of color Mm -hmm. and we established a group a couple of years ago and we meet pretty regularly, like every other month and we really share. And it's very easy for us to, you know, make that group just kind of hanging out and like, you know, listening to music and eating and enjoying each other's company. But we also intentionally um, created it as a space to be able to talk about things we're going through professionally, mm-hmm. to talk about what our goals are, to hold each other accountable, mm-hmm. to hold ourselves accountable. Mm-hmm. So I think those are some of the different ways that mm-hmm. you know it's that I use to prevent burnout. Right. You know, in addition to all the other self care stuff. Right. But I think those spaces they're vital. They're mm-hmm. absolutely vital. We have to name things. Mm-hmm. We have to find people that encourage us to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to be that person also for others, but, but we need that from the people we, that we trust. And it's never about quantity, right? It's mm-hmm. quality. If you have two or three people that you can talk to, you got, you know, an attorney, you got, it's, it's priceless. It's priceless. Absolutely. So I think just utilizing the people in my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, this might be a little bit redundant, but sure. I figured since you brought it up. Okay. Self-care. What are your thoughts about self I feel like self-care kind of came about over the past like couple years it sounds like a cliche it sounds like a thing we do right you know it's like i mean it's also like mindfulness like there's all there's all these words that you know they they surface and and it's not to like negate their importance Mm -hmm. but it's just that you know perhaps we'd always been doing those things or talking about those things with other words right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or maybe we haven't been doing something and and now we had to give it a name in order Mm -hmm. to be doing it i'm not sure (laughs) i really i'm really not sure but i think the self-care i mean (laughs) when you look at the word it was it seemed like somebody created it and it was super easy i know they said self-care and they said well what's that and it's like caring for yourself i'm like oh that's redundant yeah So it seems almost too simple, but I think, I think it evolved because I think people were trying to find what's the opposite of burnout, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's, it, mm-hmm. and that's something we've all been talking about, but even that has had multiple names over the years. Mm-hmm. We've called it burnout. We've called it vicarious traumatization, oh, you know, yeah. being traumatized sure. through others. We've called it compassion fatigue. We've true. called it that's so true. many it's different been other words. It's been right. other words. Yeah. So I'm not sure. I'm going to have to probably like Google later, like what the evolution <laughs> of self-care has been. But I think it's just been the two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. Like, what is it that really drains us of our very energy and ability to do the things we actually want to do? And then, so the flip side of that coin to me is then what are the things that we need in order to be able to mm-hmm. do the things we want to do? Right, right, mm-hmm. right. Um, and so what advice would you have for someone who may be considering the field of social work? <laughs> please, please, please. Do not go into this field just because you want to help people. Like, please don't do that. Don't do that. And it seems, 
you know, someone could hear that and go, what? Like, isn't that the very thing that you're doing? That's the core. That's the core, right? <laughs> That's what seems like. Uh, pause. Back it up. Back up. All right, let's try it again. The thing is that I think the best social workers, and perhaps, okay, so there's space. If I'm saying the best social workers, there's space for people who are not the best. So, there is. But if you're going into a social worker, into, into the social work field, I mean, sorry. I think the best social workers want to help, yes, okay? But helping means something. And it has to really be rooted in some kind of a value. If the value is rooted in just charity, in just like, I want to help people because I can. I want to help people because, oh, those poor, sad people going through these really bad things. You're going to burn out. Like, you're going to burn out. Because someone going in with a different set of intentions with, you know, let's say even the greatest of support still runs the risk of burning out. <laughs> but if you go in and you're just like, I just want to help people because those poor people, my God, my heart, my this, my that, you're going to be in trouble because it's a thankless job. We get paid barely. <laughs> although, I will, although I will say there is more money in social work than, than we may have grown up That's ever true. understanding. Okay. Yeah. Um, because we're not, you know, we're not necessarily, it depends on the field, I would say. And sometimes okay. we do have to negotiate for ourselves and really push and advocate the same ways we advocate for others. We got to be able to advocate for ourselves. Yeah. And that's how we got our hustles. But let's like, like, use right. these social work skills. But you're not going into it for the money. That you have to be very honest about. And it can't just be about helping people. I honestly think it has to be about seeing yourself in this world and saying, like, what is it that I want to do with the time that I have here? Mm -hmm. What's important? What's going on out there? We can't do everything, right? I think of social work as really being, like, social justice work. And I think you only survive, and yet it's hard, but I think you only really get that longevity if you see your work as part of social justice. Because it's what are the really crappy things happening in this world and what are the interventions that can happen to try to mitigate that even a little bit and remember interventions can be from the level of just like i'm gonna sit in this space with you and be with you through this injustice to macro and, and meso and all these other levels where we are talking about policy changes and we are talking talking about you know how we create programs and how we navigate things and we can get into politics as social workers we can be community organizers we can do so many things in this realm but it's like remembering that we all have spaces some of which may overlap and some of us may never overlap but what's your target issue what is it that you want to see different and how do you think some of that might happen and then just be careful because no matter what like when you give your heart to something and especially when we have to be in the business of being with people through really hard things or even being there for ourselves through really hard things, then you have to be taking care of yourself along the way. Mm. The other piece is for many social workers, they could be what they call wounded warriors. Mm. We could be in fields because we went through something similar. Right. Someone we know went through something similar. The field we choose is something that impacted us or impacted a friend. And so our work can be constantly triggering. Again, all that goes back to really taking care of ourselves mm -hmm. and not necessarily in a cliche kind of way, but in really being able to acknowledge and do the work of what brings me to this, mm -hmm. what can I bring to the table, what am I going to get from this, um, how am I still healing, mm -hmm. how am I helping in the healing of others, how could I impede the healing of others because of my own stuff. Like We have to ask ourselves hard questions. That's true. I agree. 100%. Mm -hmm. And so 
before we were talking, before we hit record, we were talking that a year ago you were a keynote, right? <laughs> so we are talking about that. And recently, I know you showed me the clip, and if it's okay with, with me sharing with the audience, just the link that you sent me, but you were featured on New York One. Okay, pretty phenomenal. <laughs> so given all that you've done already so far, where do you see yourself career-wise in, ten, in the next 10 years? Ooh, 10 years. Um... <laughs> Oh man! <laughs> I hope I live somewhere warm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ten years. Yes. I'm gonna put that out there. The universe has a goal. Let me be doing social work in a warm place. No, um, that is one goal. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not 100 percent sure. I think that that's the space that I'm in right now and what I'm trying to navigate. Where I still see myself very much in this world of social work. But I'm a little bit thinking about what comes next. Mm-hmm. Um, I will start teaching a class next month at um, Columbia School Social Work, Ooh. and that's my first time teaching. Like I've done training, I've done trainings, groups, advising, things like that, and I love doing group work. Um, so I definitely see teaching as like part of that trajectory. Okay. But I've never officially done teaching in that kind of structured curriculum-based way. Um, so that'll be exciting and who knows because again I always think about and we were talking about this before we started recording about last week I was watching the video from Elevation Church and they were talking about pivotal decisions Mm -hmm. and how oftentimes when we change when we pivot in our lives we may not even realize they're not significant obvious ways that we're switching gears they could be little things like making connections with a person deciding to go to this one organization or this store this bookstore you know it can be anything um, deciding to visit a web page and reading about something you didn't even intend to read about that day. And so I think to myself, you know, teaching this class next month, is that something that's going to be a, a pivot that leads to something else later on the road? Maybe I've always wanted to film a documentary. Like, okay. I don't know if that'll happen in 10 years. I hope it happens before I die. <laughs> right, listen. I've read old journals. Like, I, you know, yeah. like everybody's doing the con Marie, right? Everybody's like yeah. tidying up these days. Yeah, right. And I'm actually a natural born purger, so okay. I like purge every three to four months well, anyway. But listen, <laughs> I love throwing stuff away. But the Comrie style has a little bit more, uh, has a little more swag to it, you know. Right. You touch the things, you wake into the spirit, you like <laughs> see what brings you joy, all that good stuff. So I was doing that with my journals. My journals bring me joy, so like they got to stay. <laughs> but reading through old journals, I would see things like, oh, you know, one of the backup things that I wanted to do when I was much, much younger was I wanted to be a journalist. And I don't necessarily see myself being a journalist, but I see myself kind of taking social work skills into perhaps there are things that I want to shine a light on. Mm-hmm. So I think of like a documentary. Like mm-hmm. I love criminal justice reform. I love mm-hmm. women's issues. So I definitely mm-hmm. see myself staying in this field. I want to do more progressive work, like mm-hmm. more social justice work, more active, like uh, intentional being out there and working on certain issues. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, I think I do a lot more work on the healing side, which I also love, mm-hmm. but I might switch gears. Maybe the percentages shift. Maybe I'm doing you know, therapeutic work 10% of the time and social justice work 90% of the time mm-hmm. or vice versa. I don't know. I think the, you know, the world's out there yeah. and there are options and I'm just going to trust that each step leads me where I'm supposed to go. Yeah. Well, thank you. And the last question I'd like to ask all my guests, mm-hmm. what are some misguided notions that you think people have when they think of social workers? Oh, well, I will say this. There have been countless places I've ever been to, right? Whether they're parties, um, bridal showers, whatever, <laughs> where people say, 
hey, what do you do for a living? And when I tell them and they pop their head to the side and they go, you must be so fulfilled in your work. <laughs> and I know in my heart that that must be a compliment or something. Right. But it is such an awkward response to the I idea that I'm that. a social worker that I think that's part of the misguided notions mm. is that you know, people who are in social work are either bleeding hearts or, you know, we just are all day, every day, just scooping up people from the street and bringing them into our <laughs> homes or something. I don't know what people are thinking. And guess what? It's not fulfilling every day. <laughs> One woman once said to me, you must come home from work every day feeling so fulfilled. And I'm like, absolutely not. Absolutely no. not. Absolutely not. <laughs> Someone said that to Someone me? Someone said that to me. What? And she worked for like a corporation I will not name, okay. but she worked for a corporation making <laughs> way more money. And, okay. and you know, her whole point was that she was totally unfulfilled in her work. Mm. And that can happen in any work. Of course. But it's such a weird juxtaposition of mm. like that you have this unfulfilling work and me by default of helping others means it's super fulfilling. What I would say about social work is that if you do it for X amount of time, and I think definitely for the amount of time I've been doing it, my heart is in it, like you said earlier. Like, yeah. it's certainly my calling. But because something is your calling doesn't mean every day is flowers and butterflies and rainbows. Thank it you. just means that when the day is not flowers and butterflies and rainbows, you still want to wake up the next day and hope that you feel differently so you can get back to the work that you're already doing, you know? I think about relationships. Like, you could love the person you're with, but every day you don't always love them every single moment. <laughs> like, you're like, ooh, these 20 minutes, this three hours or whatever, ooh, you lucky we still here right now. Like, <laughs> you give birth. Like, I look at my son, I'm like, you are my greatest achievement in the world, but I'll be darned if I'm not super happy when I get a break. Like, when I'm going to do this, you know, I'm going on a spa day without you. When you're going to grandma's house for a week. Like, those right. are vital things. So I think to myself, if, if even in the relationships in which we love people to absolute pieces, every day is not an easy day, then social work for our professions will certainly not be that either. But I also, I think the biggest misguided notion about social work is probably the fact that it's not worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Like, I want little kids to say, I want to be a social worker. I want a career day to be like, you know, for someone to invite a social worker and kids go, ooh, I want to do that. Whether it's middle school or elementary or high school. College. I want to yeah. hear that. I want the social work um, chapters of each college mm-hmm. not to be the smallest school or something, but the smallest group. Um, I want people to feel that it is worthwhile. And then when people believe that it is worthwhile on a greater scale, then we advocate for races. That's right. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Amen to that. Thank you. Thank You're you welcome. so much, Mika. You're, You're amazing. Thank, Thank you. you. Of course. As you can see, Shamika is doing amazing things in our community. And she was just such a joy to be around and I'm so excited to see where her career is going to take her next so definitely let me know what you thought of this episode be sure to subscribe rate review and tell a friend about the misguided notions podcast